endeavor into the second lesson tonight of the life and lesson lessons of the patriarchs. And tonight, uh, Pastor has asked me to speak on uh, the patriarch Isaac. So we're going to dive into this. And I can tell you that um, as I began to study and pray about this, um, and I've had every time I preach, as pastor says, it's so true. We, we speak to our wives. I speak to my wife and I kind of share with her my thoughts, the direction. And I've, I quit doing that for a long time because, you know, after 20 years, you get that, uh, just, they don't say nothing. They just give you that, mm, just that look. And you're like, what, what's wrong? You know, what do I need to do? And is that bad? So you start questioning. So I just kind of stopped doing that. But I was having a conversation with her on this. And I said, you know, I I really, I'm, I'm kind of drawing a blank because, you know, when you, you're asked to speak about an individual, you, you have nothing more than just their life. She goes, well, you know, give the backstory. I said, there is no backstory. It is just what it is. And so I began to pray and fast and seek the Lord. And I believe the Lord has showed me just a few little things um, that we're going to speak to tonight that's going to help us in our life. Uh, you know, we learn by not only listening to what others have to say, but watching what others do and don't do. Some things are caught and some things are taught. I truly believe that. So tonight when we consider Isaac, we all know that he was the son of the patriarch Abraham. Our minds automatically go to this uh, uh, great man of God, this fantastic man of God that did no wrong. He did, did nothing except just be super powerful. And last week we learned from the Bible study that was given by Sister Angie Treadway, who did an absolute tremendous job on Abraham. We learned a little of the beginning of Isaac's life from the teaching of Abraham. And from that, I will build a foundation tonight. We know that Abraham left the land of Ur. It was a place of idolatry to travel to the land of Canaan by the spoken Word from the Lord directly to him. He told him, Abraham, get thee out of thy country. We know that through the scripture that God knew Abraham, Abraham and that he would command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. Abraham would take his wife Sarah and his nephew Lot and they would make their way to the land of Canaan. It's from this point forward that we see and learn not only did Abraham succeed with his spiritual man, but he also struggled with his flesh, his carnal man at times. And from telling uh, a small lie to the Egyptians that Sarah was his sister to having a child outside of the promise of God to believing God for the mighty things in his life, he constantly battled flesh and spirit, as Sister Angie so wonderfully told us. But Abraham remained faithful, as did the Lord, because he had his promised child, Isaac, and that promised child came to pass. At a very old age, it came to pass, even through the laughter of Sarah, God told her, oh, you're going to have a child, and she kind of laughed within herself, uh, okay, really, that sounds good. Do you know how old I am, Lord? And the Lord bypassed that, and she had a child by the name of Isaac. So we learned some great lessons for our lives through the patriarch of Abraham, but tonight we're going to take the time to look into the life of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and hopefully gain some insight through his life and what he did right and some of the things he did wrong. Because uh, 
Contrary to popular belief, men and women of God in the Bible were just like you and I. They were not super spiritual. They didn't walk all the time in the spirit. They failed. They, 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 the scripture that David said that we're conceived in sin and shaped in iniquity rang true even for them. So tonight we're going to look into Isaac's life. Now, anytime someone's life has opened up, it's evaluated or it is reviewed. It can give direction or instruction to those that are reading or listening. Anybody remember being a child? And watching your sibling, your sibling, sorry, my, my North Carolina accent will come out instead of saying sibling, I'll say sibling. So if I say sibling, that's a, that's your brother or sister. All right. I'll try to Indiana. I'll Hoosierfy it. All right. Anybody ever remember your, your sibling getting in trouble and you see them, uh, about to get disciplined and you go, Oh no, I better not do that. You learn by observing what somebody else is doing because we are smart enough in our human ability to put one and one together, two and two together, that if I backtalk mom and dad, I'm going to be grounded or there's going to be disciplinary actions in my life. So we learn by evaluating someone else's life. That's where I learned when I get in trouble, to run to your bedroom as fast as you can and put on as many layers of sweatpants as you possibly can. By the laughter, I know I'm not the only one in the room that's done that. And then you do what's called the spanking dance. You dance around the room. And I remember one time I, I was in trouble. I was about eight years old and I was a quick learner. Wasn't very smart, but I was a quick learner. And, um, I did the sweatpants, <laughs> I did the sweatpants trick and my mom came in the room and she grabbed me by the hand because I did something that was not very good. And I did the dance room and I cried and she went out, shut the door and I started laughing. And lo and behold, that mom's intuition kicked in and she opened the door and then the crying really started. I'd seen my sister do that and it worked for her, but it did not work for me at that time. <laughs> so we see life as it happens on a day-to-day basis. And when our life is opened up, then people can evaluate our lives. So today we're going to open up the life of Isaac. And that's what we want to do here tonight. Peel back some of the accounts of his life and see how the Lord wants to help us in our lives. When we always see a newborn baby, we automatically say, oh, they're so cute. Oh, she's beautiful. That is, oh, that's the most perfect baby. Knowing that sometimes we're not telling the complete truth. Sometimes it's best just to go, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding. All babies are beautiful. But we say that we look at a baby with like, oh, they're perfect. They're perfect. They, they're beautiful. He's handsome. Oh, they're just, they're, they're just amazing. Look at that. That's fantastic. We look at that and, and we watch them as their life grows. They begin to crawl and they begin to talk and we begin to see their growth and their accomplishments throughout their life. And we see it in real time as it happens, as the situations come in their life and they unfold. And we get to learn from their opportunity of their life lessons. Nothing much is really said about when you get to be an adult about one's life when things are happening. Not much is said about that individual. However, a lot is said 
at the close of one's individual life. When one passes away, a lot of people say a lot of things about the individual that has passed on to meet their reward. I learned a long time ago, my father-in-law would say a saying, it's not really, there's a, it matters what you do. It doesn't matter what you do in the beginning or necessarily at the very end. It's what you do from the cradle to the grave. Because what we do in between in our lives, the lessons we learn and how we portray our lives will give people a reason to say, she was a faithful woman of God. He was a faithful man of God. They were a prayer warrior. They knew how to pray for the sick. They knew how to stand in the gap. That's what I want people to say about my life. I want people to look at my life and, and say, he knew how to handle the things of God. And he prayed and he was, I want, I want that to be said. I don't want it to be said, oh, he's got a great bank account. He drives a really nice car. He was really handsome. I've learned you got to compliment yourself sometimes. That's what I want it to be said of not only my life, but our life. So we're going to look at the Bible to those that have given us the examples and the lessons, the opportunities to strive to be better of God. So when we consider Isaac, the son of Abraham, as I said earlier, our minds automatically go to this great man of God, this great patriarch of old. And we tend to believe that they had this supernatural strength, this ability to have faith in every situation and never questioned the Lord, never were fearful, fearful. They had it all together at all times. But it probably wasn't always that way. The first lesson I want us to learn tonight is found in Genesis, the 22nd chapter. This is the account of the sacrifice of Isaac. It is a dramatic record of remarkable crisis in Abraham's life. It is a story without precedent or parallel in the Old Testament. It is without precedent because Jehovah God had never demanded a human sacrifice before. We find the Lord telling Abraham, Abraham, take thy son, thine only son, and take him up to the mountain and sacrifice. Never before has God ever asked this or ever required this. For it was without parallel because no one had ever, no one, hear me, no one had ever been commanded to do so. So here we have the scene. Heartache, brokenness, lack of understanding. Illogical son of promise now to be sacrificed to the God who provided him. Surrounding pagans had regularly offered their children as a sacrifice to the gods, but not to Jehovah. It all seemed so improbable and impossible and all unnecessary. From the thought process of Abraham, even to Sarah, even to Jacob. Here's what it says in Genesis 22 and verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. And said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here am I. And he said, Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah. And offer him therefore a burnt offering upon one of these one of the mountains which I tell thee of. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey and two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went unto the place of which God had told him. Then the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Verse five. And Abraham said unto his young men. 
Abide here with the donkey and, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Abraham already, I never realized this until I began to read it. One, God tempted Abraham with this promise. Two, Abraham already spoke that him and his son were going to come back the mountain when Abraham did not even know that God was going to allow Abraham to come off the, oh, Isaac to come off the altar. There is a point to be said of that, that we must be willing to obey the voice of God, hear God, obey his voice, follow it, regardless of what the outcome may be, but have the faith that everything's going to be all right. It's easy to say everything's going to be all right until you gather all the wood and you're looking at the mountain and saying, here's where we're going to sacrifice my promise. Verse 6, and Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife and they both, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham, his father, and said, my father, he said, here am I, my son. And he said, behold, the fire, the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? This gives us a little insight. A lot of Sunday school stories want to give us a picture that Isaac was a very young boy who had really no idea of what was going on. But we find that Isaac was strong enough to carry the necessary items up the mountain for the sacrifice. And he was consciously aware enough that he knew how sacrifice was to be done. He knew that they had the wood and they had the fire, but where was the sacrifice? Now remember verse 2, the Lord said, your only son whom thou lovest. He said, Abraham, you take your only son. He didn't mention Ishmael, he mentioned Isaac. You take your only son and you take him to the top of the mountain and you offer him as a burnt offering. Imagine that you finally have your promised son. And now the Lord asks you, He wants you to take him and offer him up as a sacrifice to him. Can I tell you today that our promise that the Lord has given us can never mean more to us than the God who gave it. I'm going to say that again. The promise that God has given you can never be greater than the God who gave it. We can never say, this is mine, Lord. You gave it to me. I'm going to hold it with everything I got because that's when we become selfish and the Lord withdraws the blessings that are to come after that because we with, we hold on to such, such a grip of the one promise when really God has multiple promises down the road. We have to fall in love with the God of the promise, not the promise of God. So many people come to church For the emotional high of the service rather than the sacrifice of the altar. One would think that the greater the challenge would be in this situation is the one who is being offered up for said sacrifice. It is easier, would seem easier to offer someone else up rather than to offer yourself. Can I get an amen? I don't know about you, but if it's me or you, hey, you go ahead. Please prefer your brother. I don't, I mean, I wouldn't want to just hop up there. Oh, there's the altar. You got the fire, dad. Oh, I see that knife. It looks pretty sharp. Let me hop on up here. Many times we think that we see in our mind's eye that Isaac is just this little kid who was not willing to say no to his dad. Couldn't say no to his dad. 
He was just a little boy that could be grabbed or wrangled into submission and forced onto the altar. However, according to Jewish historians, based off of the age of Abraham, Isaac could have been anywhere from 25 years old and up. Some say even to 40 years of age. That being said, with his knowledge of the preparation for worship, his knowledge for sacrifice, he understood everything that was about to happen on Mount Moriah. He understood everything that was about to take place. That being said, Isaac, a young man, could have put his Nikes to flight. He could have took off running down the mountain as fast as he could. Oh, no, you're not sacrificing me. There ain't no way. I'm re- No, sir. Uh-uh. I don't know what you're trying to do, Dad, but I'm, I'm going back down with the servants. He could have ran. He could have fled. He could have wrestled the knife out of his dad's hand. His dad was an old guy. Abraham said he was. He could have fought him and and took him. He could have kicked down the altar. He could have destroyed it and said, we're not doing this. That's because of his strength. He wasn't a little kid that didn't understand what he was doing. He was a grown man that understood the full consequences of what was about to happen. It was at this point, Abraham is up there. And Isaac could have stopped him. Isaac could have bound him and put him on the altar. But Isaac willingly, willingly laid on the altar. He willingly, and I just want you to see this. As I saw it, as I sat at my, my desk and I began to put this together, I see this young man built. They didn't have McDonald's back then. They didn't have the Lord's chicken, Chick-fil-A. They, they just ate the necessary and they worked hard. So I imagine him as this strong 25 plus year old man. He's carrying the wood and the necessary things to build the altar. And he gets to the top of the mountain and Abraham's putting together the altar. Can, let me stop right here and say this. If there's ever a day that men, we have to get back to building altars in front of our kids. We have to get back to the place where our kids hear us pray. They see us worship. They see us read the word of God. They see us tell others of the goodness of God. They just don't see us just come to church even though that's necessary. They see us live what we portray and proclaim that we are. That we are the men of God. That we lift up holy hands without wrath and the, without doubt. And that we men know how to pray. We men know how to sacrifice. We men need to lead our younger men in what sacrifice looks like. That at times it's not pleasant. At times it's not fun. It's a journey. It's going to take your strength and zap your strength at times. But yet we continue to do it because the Lord said that we are to live our life a living sacrifice. That's holy and acceptable unto the Lord. He was willing, carrying that wood. And now they're at the point, and Isaac's like, we got the fire, we got the wood, where's the lamb? And all his dad had to say to him was the Lord will provide himself a sacrifice. We all know and understand that that was a prophetic utterance of, the, of Calvary, that the Lord was going to come and robe himself in flesh. Isaac says, okay, dad. He takes him. And he helps him get on the altar. That's why Solomon says in Proverbs 3 and 5, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not to your own understanding. His understanding said, I got to get off this mountain. 
But when you trust in the Lord, the Lord, Lord, you know, I don't know what's about to happen, but I'm willingly going to lay down my life. I'm willingly going to get on this altar. Here's what verse 8 says. Abraham said, my son, God will provide. Can I tell you that when you do what's right, when you do what God has spoke to you to do, when you carry your promise and you lay it on the altar and you say, God, I've prayed for this for a long time. I know I messed up sometimes and I, I had an Ishmael. I'd done some things and I created a problem in my life. But Lord, you've forgiven me and yet you've given me a promise. But Lord, you're asking for my promise when we can relinquish what God has given us. And when we can lay it on the altar, that's when God will provide himself. There will be times when you don't have all the answers. There will be times when you don't have the rest of the story at that moment. The only thing that you possess is your ability to be willing to follow God's plan and know that he's going to provide at that right moment if you're just willing to lay down. Nudge your neighbor and tell him, are you willing No one ever said it would be easy. I thought when I got in church, it was going to be, oh man, this is fantastic. The goosebumps all the time. I feel so much joy. This is going to be great. I thought it was just going to be smooth sailing from here on out. But that's not true because I'm still flesh. I still live in a world that is full of sin and I battle it every day. No one ever told me, oh, Tim, this is going to be so comfortable. This is going to be just the easiest thing you've ever done. No, it's a struggle. Living for God, to having to sacrifice this flesh is a struggle on a daily basis. Pastor Shock says this and I love it and I do it to this day. I look at myself in the mirror and I say, Tim, you will not win today. Because I want my flesh to know that my flesh does not have authority over me. That I am a child of God. That I'm dying out willingly. Lord, whatever you want me to do today. Whoever you want me to speak to. That's what I want to do. It's never easy at times. It's never comfortable. But if we can just come to the conclusion that if God brought us to that moment in our life. And he's calling us to be willing To lay down, we must be willing to lay down. I don't think Abraham wanted to bind up his son and lay him on that altar. I don't think he wanted to raise that knife to take his son's life. Not at all. As a dad, I don't know. I'm a a big softy. My kids go to bed and, well, I can't say that now because they stay up later than I do now. They're in those teenage years. But my kids were at the age where they would go to bed and I would go in there and Tuck them in and they would go to sleep. And this may sound a little strange, but I would go in their bedroom and I would just stand there and I would look at them and I would not, I'm a loud person. If you haven't noticed, I can be loud. I like to talk. I was at general conference one time in a Wendy's and I was talking, I was witnessing to some people and had some church friends with me. And this guy that I wasn't even talking to, he looks at my father-in-law, well, he must be a preacher. My father-in-law goes, excuse me, he goes, woo, he's a motor mouth with a full tank of gas. <laughs> I said, you, we're kindred spirits. <laughs> but I would go into the bedroom and I'd look at my kids and I'd realize how fast life is going. And I would begin to, to weep and say, Lord, just let it slow down a little bit. And I would begin to pray over them that God would order their steps, that God would... Help them to be willing to do whatever. Because me, I want to keep my kids close to me for all their life. 
But Lord, if you want to call them to another country, if you want to call them across the United States or across the world, Lord, I'm willing to lay them down and let them go. That's got to be our prayer. See, willingness is twofold. Isaac had to be willing to obey the Lord and take Isaac up the mountain to sacrifice. And Isaac had to be willing to lay down on the altar to watch the Lord fulfill the promise of providing himself. Willingness is letting go of the grasp of today's promise and watching the Lord prepare the promise of the next generation. I truly believe that Abraham knew that Isaac was going to step in his place. He knew that he was going to take the promise that God had given Abraham and continue to fulfill it by giving the land to the children of God. If there's ever a day, if there's ever an hour, if there's ever a moment, we have and must be willing today to release the promises in order for God to use the next generation. I believe that it was more than just them going up there to sacrifice. It was obeying the Lord, but it was Abraham showing Isaac, son, if you want to carry on the promises of God and fulfill his will, these are the things you must do. We have to, as the body of Christ, must be willing to do things that aren't easy. We must be willing to worship when we don't feel like it. We must be willing to come to church and be faithful even when we don't feel like it. Now, if you have a fever, please stay home. I love you from a distance. You can watch online. We'll wave at you. But we have to be willing to do the hard things sometimes in order to be successful in the kingdom of God. Here's what Isaiah 1 and 19 says. If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat the good of the land. I truly believe that if New Life Fellowship, if the body of Christ here in Terre Haute, if we will pray and say, Lord, give us a willing spirit that the Lord's going to give us the good of the land in our, in our city, in our community, in our state, that we are going to become a lighthouse, a beacon for all those around the country. They're going to look to us. How are you doing it? What are you doing to have revival and to see growth and to make disciples? It's mainly because we lay ourselves down on the altar and say we're willing to do whatever God wants us to do. The second lesson tonight that I think we can pull from in Isaac's life is found in Genesis 26 and 15. It says, For all the wells which his father's servants had digged in the days of Abraham his father, the Philistines had stopped him and filled them with earth. Verse 18 says, And Isaac digged again the wells of water, which they had digged in the days of Abraham, his father. We're going to learn now about his obedience of staying in a dry place. When nothing seems to be working and everything seems to be against him, his obedience to continue to stay and to dig and to redig. It was the wells that Abraham dug that provided the water that made it possible for Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, their family, their servants, and all their flocks to survive. It was the water from those wells that Abraham, the patriarch Abraham, had dug. That was the source of life in an environment of death. Without water, no one and nothing of Abraham's would have survived. It was those wells that Abraham had dug, they were the symbol, not just water, 
It was a symbol. It was a symbolic meaning. It wasn't just a refreshing on a hot day in the desert. It wasn't just so his cattle could survive or his servants would survive to continue to serve him. No, it was more than that. It was all that Abraham had done in obedience to God and all that God had done in providing for and protecting Abraham. Imagine the time and the energy that Abraham had put into digging every single well in the desert to find a place for some refreshing water for his family and his servants and all of their flocks. Only to have someone to come and to fill all of them back in. It's called the crab mentality. What do those words mean? It's a way of thinking best described by the phrase, if I can't have it, neither can you. The metaphor refers to a bucket of crabs. Individually, the crabs in the story could escape from the bucket. They could get out very easily. But instead, they're described as grabbing at each other in a useless king of the hill competition. Which prevents any crab from escaping the bucket and ensures their collective demise. Anybody ever seen that happen? I've seen it. My wife has family that lives in Florida and and I thought it was just a, a, a story. And I was like, oh, that's pretty neat. That's, that's a cool story. And then they had a, a crab boil, a big seafood, sea, seafood deal a couple years ago. And they had all these crabs and they dumped them in the bucket. And they started to climb out. And I noticed one would get right over the edge. And all of a sudden he gets sucked back down. And I was like, I'm sitting there watching it. I didn't go over because it was hot. It's Florida. So I just sat there and watched it from a distance. And then I saw another and another. And finally, I got curious enough to get up where I was. And I walked over to the bucket. And I stood there and I just watched as a crab stepped on other crabs to get to the rim of the bucket. Only to have another crab go, oh, no, you ain't. And he pulls him back down. That's what we find in the story of Abraham. Abraham's digging. He's finding wells throughout all of his life. Only to have the Philistines come in and to say, oh, no, you're not going to have that water. We're going to fill it back in. It's the, it's the analogy in human behavior is claimed to be that members of a group will attempt to negate or diminish the importance of any member who achieves or success beyond the others out of envy, spite, conspiracy, or even competitive feelings to halt their progress. It's right at that moment that Isaac is about to celebrate his, his success by discovering water on the well that he has redug. He's finally hit water. He's thirsty. He's tired in the hot summer desert. He's finally hit water. He's about to celebrate when all of a sudden his enemy comes in and takes what he has worked for simply because they envied what he had. So let's take a look into some of the wells of or the results of Isaac staying and redigging the well. The first well I want to talk to you tonight about is the well of jealousy. Genesis 26 and 14. For he had possession of flocks, possession of herds, and great store of servants. And the Philistines envied him. For no apparent reason, the Philistines began to act strangely toward Isaac. Once they had been open and friendly, but now all of a sudden their attitudes changed. They became jealous and felt threatened by the blessing of God upon Isaac's life. Do you understand that many problems in relationships today stem from jealousy? 
A lot of people won't talk to other people because they're simply jealous of what they have. Simply jealous of, of what they possess, the way they look, how they act. My, my, my son asked me the other day as he's uh, driving to get his time in to get his license and we're just driving around um, using that good $3.25 gas. Thank God I got a Toyota. Glory to God. Thank you, Jesus. I could shout. Just hit 300,000 miles. For, <laughs> and it's all work miles. And we're driving around. He goes, Dad, have you ever wondered what other people are thinking in the car in front of you? Or what their life is like? I said, what do you mean? He goes, look at that car. He goes, that's a nice car. What is that? I said, I think it's Corvette. He goes, oh man, that's nice. They be, must be rich. They must have a lot of money. They must do this. And then I said, oh yeah, they may have all that. He goes, man, I hope, I wish I could have that. I said, bro, you're sitting in a 2012 Toyota Corolla Sport. I mean, I got a sunroof, got a cracked windshield, had three rocks hit me in one day. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. I'm afraid to replace it because I'm afraid it'll fall apart. Anybody ever felt that way? <laughs> I've taken down many raccoons on my miles of travel. And he, and he says, he says, but dad, wouldn't it be cool to be them? I said, No. He says, what do you mean, though? Look at that cool car. I was like, but you don't know what their life is like. You don't, you don't understand what they're going through. They may have it all together on the outside, but they're troubled on the inside. I said, you can't always measure a man by the type of suit he wears or the kind of car he drives or how well they sing or how talented they are. You strive to be the best you you can be. I said, because what will happen, son, is a spirit of jealousy will come in and you'll begin to look at your life and say, well, I don't have that. I wish I had this. I don't have this. I wish I had that. And you'll let go eventually of the things of God that you once held dear, like prayer and fasting and reading the word, because that takes too much time and you'll put more effort into working to make money so you can get what somebody else has. So there is a relationship. In relationships, problems generally stem from jealousy. When you're blessed, you seem to be growing while others are diminishing. And the Philistines decided just to sling mud into Isaac's well. Oh, okay, Isaac. All right. You think you're doing good? How you like this? And they start filling in all the well that he just redug that his dad Doug. He said, this is a place where my dad had sustenance for him and his family and his wife. I'm going to dig here again. Oh, praise God, I found water. But somebody got jealous over it and came and filled it all back in. Isaac had a decision to make at that moment. I can get mad and I can go to war. I can get a bad attitude. I, I tell my kids, I, I can only tell you what I do. I tell my kids, you control you. Other people can do whatever they want in your life. You control you. If others are upset or being, uh, as my grandma Ruth used to say, don't, Tim, don't be ugly. That's a Southern thing. She wasn't talking about my appearance because she knew how good I looked. She was talking about my attitude. 
She said, now don't be ugly, Tim. I said, people can be ugly to you. They can treat you bad, but you control your response. You control how you react to your situation in life. So Isaac had the decision. I could bite into this root of jealousy and create a, a deeper relationship problem with the Philistines, but he didn't do that. He moved on. Verse 20 of 20, Genesis 26. And the herdmen of Gerar did strive with Isaac's herdmen. They're walking along together saying, this water's ours. And he called the name of the well Essek because they strove with him. The second well is a well of arguments or strife. See, jealousy can be subtle, gently removing you from the scene of withdrawal, if you please. However, in this section of Genesis 26, verse 20, jealousy can turn into opposition and even to an open argument. Essek, the word used in the original text, can mean even mean a lawsuit. Imagine that. Isaac moves on to redig a well that his father had dug, and the herdsmen that were with them said, no, 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 this is ours. We appreciate what you've done, but this is ours. We're going we're gonna to take ownership of this now. See, envy brings strife and strife brings contention. A person you never quarreled with before will suddenly begin to act like your enemy, enemy openly challenging you for no apparent reason. Can I tell you, people will always challenge you, argue with you, with what you're doing to try and keep you from the blessings that God wants to allow to flow in your life. When I was a freshman in high school, I was a very good baseball player. Now I'm a very good softball player because I've elevated to men's softball league. But I was a very good baseball player. I was the first freshman in our school history to ever make the varsity team. It was right about the time that I got in church. And I was at practice one day and I felt the Holy Ghost. I was on third base and the coach was hitting grounders to us. And, and the, the Lord will speak to you at, at some of the strangest places. And I'm at third base and I'm catching grounders and I'm firing them to third. And the Lord speaks to me. I felt the Holy Ghost give me an unction. And he tells me, this is taking too much of your time. Now, there, I'm not saying there's anything wrong. I'm just telling you how the Lord spoke in my life. And I kind of bypassed it a little bit. I'm like, oh, okay, you know, I made, I argued with the Lord. Well, Lord, this is only a couple hours a day. And then on a Wednesday, the coach said, hey, we're going to stay late for practice. And I missed church on a Wednesday. It dug deep in me. It hurt me bad. And as I was on third base on that Thursday, the Holy Ghost spoke to me and basically said, see, I told you so. And so I quit the baseball team. And my friends were very upset at me. They were really mad. In fact, I started teaching Bible studies during lunch and they got so mad at me one day after school, they shot me in the back with a CO2 rifle, a pellet gun. Shot me with the amount of velocity of a 22. I had to get rushed to the emergency room. They got mad because I had quit what they were doing to pursue what God was doing in my life. There's going to be times in your life where the Lord speaks to you to do something and it may not be popular with everybody around you. It may not be the cool thing to do, but you have to obey the voice of God. And you have to do it and say, okay, I'm not going to argue with you. I'm not going to argue with uh, the Herman of Gerar. I'm going to, oh, you want this well? It's yours? Okay, you can have it. And that's just what Isaac did. 
wow, here we go. Isaac, he dug one well. They filled it in. Now he went and moved his whole family and everybody, his second well. And somebody comes in and says, no, 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 this is our well. We're taking possession of this. And Isaac says, okay, you can have it. The third well is found in verse 22. And he removed from thence and digged another well. Everybody say another well. And for that they strove not. For he called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, for now the Lord hath made room for us. And we shall be fruitful in the land. The the third well is called room enough. At last, breakthrough came. He'd been consistent. He'd been persistent. He kept digging. He obeyed even when it was dry. He was digging a well. Even when others came and took what was his and his promise, he kept digging. He moved on. He didn't let the, what everybody else did affect him and his family. He kept digging and he moved on from it. And now the breakthrough came because Isaac acted instead of reacted. The enemy finally had to leave him alone. He outlasted all of his critics and opponents and accusers. That's what I'm looking for one day. I'm looking for one day when I stand before God and God says, well done, thou good and thou faithful servant. And I can look, hopefully they're standing beside me and I can say, I'm glad you're here with me, but I told you I was going to make it. I told you that we were going to make it to the end and that you were going to come with me. I want to take somebody to heaven with me, but most of all, I want to look at those and say, you'll never make it. Trust me, there's been plenty of people in my life and your life that say, oh, you'll never make it. You'll never make it. Your life's been too tough. You're never going to make it. Okay. So what do I do? I could take it and I could soak that in, soak that in, and I could get jealous. I could argue with God. I could argue with myself. Or I could say, Lord, I'm going to move on and I'm going to make room. I'm going to dig until water flows in my life. I don't. It doesn't matter what everybody else says. It doesn't matter what everybody else does. I'm going to dig until I hit the flow of God. And when I hit the flow of God, God said, I'm going to make room enough for you and your family. The breakthrough came. The fourth well was uncontested. Isaac named it Rehoboth. I'm sorry, it was the fourth well, which means wide open spaces or room enough. No longer was everything he did controversial or contested. Now it was prosperous and abundant. Can I tell us tonight that God wants us to dig and redig and stay obedient even when you're it's in a dry place. Keep doing what you know to do. You can never go wrong by doing the right thing. Even when you don't feel God, you fall on the altar and you pray and you don't feel those goosebumps and you don't feel like God is anywhere close I encourage you keep praying keep lifting your hands keep running the aisles keep dancing before the Lord you say well brother Barbara I don't feel it I gotta wait for the spirit to hit me that's not biblical we dance in our flesh and the spirit takes over I've ran many times and not felt one goosebump But by the time I get halfway around the church, my goosebumps have goosebumps. And they're producing goosebumps. If you're obedient to the Spirit, if you put your flesh willingly and say, God, this is not about me. This is about you and your kingdom. Because I don't come to church just so I can get filled up. I come to empty myself out so those that need God can fill Him. And they can get filled up. Because while God's filling them up, God fills me up. I wish I had somebody say amen. God wants to overflow in your life. 
He wants to, oh, oh my God, I feel the Holy Ghost. God wants to overflow in your life, but you got to be willing to let go of everything. Let go of the jealousy. Let go of the argument, the strife, and say, God, I'm going to move on to a place where you can flow in my life, where you can be what you want to be in my life. I want the blessings of God. Ah, my God. Calm down, Brother Barber. If we can learn to keep digging, if we can learn to keep searching for a flow of the Spirit in our lives, God will open up every, every, everybody say every, every area in our life, and there will not be room enough to contain it. The last well is called the well of restoration. Genesis 22 through 33, and I'll read quickly for the sake of time. And he removed from thence and digged another well. And for that they strove not. And they called the name of it Rehoboth. And he said, for now the Lord hath made room for us and we shall be fruitful in the land. And he went up from thence to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared unto him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham thy father. Fear not, for I am with thee. And I will bless thee and multiply thy seed for my servant Abraham's sake. And he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants digged a well. Then Abimelech went to him from Gerar and Ahuzah, one of his friends, and Pichol, the, the chief captain of his army. And Isaac said unto them, Wherefore come ye to me, seeing ye hate me and have sent me away from you? And they said, We saw certainly that the Lord was with thee. And we said... Let there be now an oath betwixt us, even betwixt us and thee, and let us make a covenant with thee. So now the ones that said he wasn't going to make it, the ones that were jealous over him, the ones that tried to steal everything you have, now has come back and said, let's make an oath. We're going to make a covenant. Verse 29, that thou wilt do no hurt to us as we have not touched thee. And as we have done unto thee nothing but good and have sent thee away in peace, thou art now blessed of the Lord. And he made them a feast. Isaac made them a feast and they did eat and drink and they rose up bedtimes in the morning and swear one to another. And Isaac sent them away and they departed from him in peace. And it came to pass the same day that Isaac's servants came and told him concerning the well which they had digged and said unto him, we have found water. Now, what a strange turn of events. Out of nowhere, his enemies appear and ask for his forgiveness and his blessing. Isaac made them food, gave them something to drink, a place to lay their head. Their relationship was permanently restored with a covenant. That day, that day, Isaac hit another well. That day that Abimelech, Came back because he sent him away. Abimelech came and said, let's, let's have peace. Isaac could have said, no, we're not doing that. You sent me away. You cast me out. You treated me horribly. You done me wrong. And I did nothing to you. You treated me badly. Abimelech, you can just go back home because I don't want anything to do with you or your people. I don't, I'm done. But he didn't do that. He said, come on in. Let me fix you some food. Here's some wine. Here's a bed. Lay down. Rest. In the morning, you can, you'll go about your way. That's just what he did. And that same day, they went back out and they dug another well. And they named it Sheba, which means seven or an oath. The number seven is also the number of completion. The Lord 
sometimes will cause your enemies to restore back to you seven times what has been stolen from you. Here's what Solomon says in Proverbs 6 and 30. People do not despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his appetite when he is hungry. But if he is caught, he will pay sevenfold. He will give all the goods of his house. Can I tell you that whoever's done something to you, offended you, or treated you bad at any time in your life, if you'll just love them, if you'll show them mercy and grace, if you'll prepare a table, as David said, before your enemies, if you'll give them a place to lay when they have nowhere to lay down, the Lord's going to give it back to you sevenfold. That's the word. Somebody say amen. No oppositions, accusations, or even the worst schemes of the enemies can stop what God wants to do in a life that's willing to obey Him and to continue to continue, continue, continue to dig and dig and dig. So what do we learn from Isaac? Don't ever give up. Keep digging. Even when you don't feel it, keep digging. Even when you don't know where the water's going to come from or when God's going to let it flow in your life, keep digging. Keep digging. Everybody say keep digging. The final point I want to make tonight is this. It's the tragedy of favoritism. The tragedy of favoritism. Now that we've gained a few insights into the life of Isaac from his willingness to lay on the altar to his faithfulness to redig the wells of his father Abraham in the midst of adversity, who of us in this room has marketed the cornered the market for craziness in family? Anybody? <laughs> I think we all have a little bit of that. It seems that broken families and dysfunctional families are everywhere. There's hope even for crazy families, wild families, broken families because of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ. My sister, a couple weeks ago, was put back in jail for something that was absolutely horrific. And I'm not spoken to her in a couple years just due to her lifestyle. And the Lord spoke to me just a couple weeks ago to reach out to her. And I did so. And I just told her, I'm praying for you. Got no response. Only to find a couple days later, my other sister had told me that she had been put in jail. She responded just a couple days later, a couple days ago. And told me that little bit of her life and that she loved us. And thank you for praying for her. See, I could love one of my sisters over the other because one has it together and one has no clue what's going on. I could show favoritism to my sister and see her when I go back home to North Carolina and not see the other. But that's not the way God wants me to be. I'm to love those that feel hopeless and broken. And I I reached out to her and I asked you to pray for her. Her name is Angie. And I'm believing that God is going to do some great things in her life. She's crazy. But Jesus Christ is greater. Amen. Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19 through 34. I'm going to read quick. I know it may not be on your paper just due to the length of the scripture, but it gives us the backdrop of the story. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife because she was barren and the Lord was entreated of him and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her and she said, if it be so, why am I thus speaking of her pregnancy? Why am I struggling? And she went, 
excuse me, to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb. Two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb. And the first came out red all over like a hairy garment. And they called his name Esau. That's one of them. Oh. Those that were listening in the beginning. Sorry, that's a dad joke. After that came his brother out, verse 26. And his hand took hold of Esau's heel. And his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was three score years old when she bare them. And the boys grew and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field. And Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau. Now notice that Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. But Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sold pottage. And Esau came from the field and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage. For I am faint. Therefore was his name called Edom or Edom. And Jacob said, sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, behold, I am at the point to die. What profit shall this birthright be to me? And Jacob said, swear to me this day. And he swore unto him. And he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and a pottage of lentils. And he did eat and drink and rose up and went his way. Then Esau despised his birthright. So here we find that favoritism causes conflict and will lead to disunity. We find that Isaac prayed. The very first portion of our scripture here that Isaac prayed. The Bible says that he entreated the Lord. Lord, I want my wife to have a a child. She's barren. Now we all know that many, many times when a couple is unable to be in the family way, it can be a bit of a struggle. It can cause Issues within the marriage. It can, I'm not saying it does or always, but it can cause a little bit of strife or a little bit of animosity, finger pointing. So the, I imagine that's where we are with Isaac and Rebecca, the years of toiling and trying to conceive because according to Old Testament, you were only blessed if you had children. And so Isaac entreated the Lord, said, Lord, my wife is barren. Would you please allow her to conceive. And the Lord entreated him. And the Bible says that Rebecca conceived. The Bible then says that the children struggled together within her. Now, this is why I say that there was a little bit of marriage problems. Because according to Old Testament, the priest, the man went to the Lord. The man was the priest of the home. He, he, he was the one that talked to the Lord. He was the one that led his family. But now we find Isaac prays. And he asked the Lord, Lord, would you please give my wife a child? We need the blessings. God does that. And the Bible says in the next verse that the children struggled together within her. And she asked the Lord, why is my pregnancy like this? What is going on? I find it a little ironic that the Lord spoke to Rebecca about the situation and not Isaac. Why wouldn't the Lord speak to Isaac if Isaac was doing what? He was called to do, and that was be the priest of his home. If his relationship was right with his wife, then he would have entreated the Lord and said, Lord, would you show me why, what is going on with my wife? Why is her pregnancy this way? But that didn't happen. Rebecca entreated the Lord. The Lord spoke to Rebecca, and the Lord told her there's two nations in there. there there's Two manner of people separated in your, they're going to be separated in your womb. One's going to be stronger, and the elder's going to serve the younger. I'm sure that 
The situation was this. Isaac was not present during this tough time in his wife's life. He was busy doing this and doing that. Busy work. He created a hostile or not so pleasant environment with his wife. I remember when we had Ethan and my wife, it was time to go to the hospital. My wife was working and she's calling me. She says, Tim, let's go. I, I, I got to go now. So we go to the hospital and I didn't eat all day. I was doing construction. She didn't eat all day because she was having contractions all day. We end up at the hospital. We're in the labor and delivery room. Man, this is exciting. I'm pumped up. This is my first. It's a boy. It's, I mean, Thank, I mean, I'm just excited. We got a child. Here we go. We're having it. Let's go. Even though I don't want to be any part of what's going to come with the, the process. I'm just excited that we're there. It's happening, right? So we're in there. The nurses are putting the IVs in and I'm like, thank you, Lord. I'm looking at the ceiling because I don't do needles. <laughs> I'm over there weak in the knees and praying. And my wife's like, is, are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I'm fine. The nurse is like, you okay? And my wife's like, he'll be fine. Don't worry about him. Worry about me. <laughs> so I'm hungry. My in-laws come. I, I call them because back then we didn't have texting. We had flip phones. And in order to text, anybody remember texting? If you wanted to text, can you, you had to hit the number two button two times. C A. God, thank you for delivering us from that era of technology. And my in-laws come. And, I, and we're there and the process is happening. And we all know it can take some time. And I said, man, I am starving. And my, my father-in-law, being the great man of God he is, he goes, you want me to get you something to eat? I said, absolutely. Me not knowing that my wife can't eat. So he goes, he gets me subway down in the hospital. And I'm... I'm running in the waiting room and I'm woofing it down. I'm eating green peppers and turkey and I'm mayonnaise is on my face and honey mustard. And I'm just, and I'm getting back in there. I'm like, whoo, all right, babe, where are we at? Let's go. And I'm right by her face. And later she would tell me the only thing that got her through the labor and delivery part was the thought that she could eat afterwards. And here comes her sweet old husband with, Turkey on his breath. Hey, babe. And I never seen this side of my wife. She was like, what did you eat? <laughs> I said, what? She goes, did you eat? I said, yeah, I was hungry. She goes, get out. Go brush your teeth. Get out. So being the obedient man of God I am, I ran out. I brushed my teeth. I popped a couple mints. And I come back in. I had my Subway cup of Sprite. She goes, what is that? She wasn't that angry. I'm dramatizing. She always rolls her eyes when I tell this story. She goes, what is that? I said, baby, Sprite, it's so good. She goes, get out. <laughs> she get away have ice chips. I didn't know. I promise you this. When Heidi was born, I knew not to eat. We were fasting. We were going to have a move of God. Glory to God. <laughs> It wasn't enough at that time for me just to be present. I'm here. Green pepper breath and all. I'm here, babe. No. It created, what I did created a little bit of problem and I had to fix the problem before I could move on. So the, the problem now is that Isaac and Rebecca, the thought of them not having kids created a little bit of issue. But now 
Isaac is nowhere to be found. And they go from having no kids to not just one child, but two. It's magnified as often happens when a husband and wife don't have a good relationship with each other. Isaac and Rebekah, they each latched on to one of their children. Verse 28 says, Isaac loved Esau because basically he loved what he loved. And Rebekah loved Jacob because she loved what he loved. Isaac saw in Esau the rugged outdoorsman that he himself could never be or never was. So he learned to live his life through his son Esau. Rebekah, on the other hand, favored Jacob because he stayed close to home. Maybe Jacob talked to her or he conversed with her. He listened to her. Something that Isaac was not doing. So we see now that a relationship that is broken in marriage is now separated even further because they're playing favorites with their children. Because what the void of the marriage that has become is now trying to be fulfilled through the children. Psychologists today warn us of the same problems that were present in this ancient home. They tell us that a dominant mother and a passive father have a tendency to produce problem children. And favoritism in a family unit to cause serious personality defects in the children. When one child is pampered and overindulged by one parent, the other gets criticized and rejected by the other. The consequence of this type of favoritism is that the child who is favored, hear this now, a favored child may spurn both parents and begin grasping for what they want in life regardless of who they hurt in the process. We have to be very careful about who we like and don't like in the church. We should not not like anybody. We have to be careful about having cliques or groups and playing favorites because it can cause people to say, I'm, I'm, well, I'm not wanted here. I'm not needed here. I'm going to move on and do what I want to do. That's what we see happening right here in the home of Isaac and Rebekah. Jacob is self-seeking, grasping by stealing his brother's birthright. Esau showed his contempt for his parents by marrying two Hittite women against their wishes. It's through favoritism we think we're helping our children by being their friend or living vicariously through them when in turn we're setting them up for rebellion. Not only against us as parents, but against God and the church. The tragedy of favoritism is this. The blessings and the order of God becomes disrupted. God said, I do things decent and in order. And when one person feels entitled or like they are owed something, they will go to great lengths to receive what they want. We find this in Genesis chapter 27. Here's what Isaac said as he is on his deathbed. Bring me to Esau, bring me game and prepare for me a delicious food that I may eat it and bless you forever. Bless you before the Lord before I die. So the blessing of the birthright is about to be passed on. It's what God ordained, what God called to do. Isaac's design, his plan with his favorite is to make it his will and declare Esau his heir. The promise of the Messiah, the land of Canaan, was a great trust that was committed to Abraham, inclusive and typical of spiritual and eternal blessings. This, and by divine direction, he transmitted this, was to transmit this blessing to Esau, being now old and nearly blind, he... He had lost his way and he played favoritism 
with Esau and created a great dilemma between Esau and Jacob. And he had caused his wife to become deceitful, not only against his son Esau, but against himself. Even on his deathbed, he shows this favoritism. He says, son, go find weapons and find me that savory meat that I so love and then I'll bless you. The very thing that started the cycle of this dysfunction of favoritism is now going to be at the end of his life. Deception takes a grip in the family. Rebecca is on the outside of the tent. She overhears this conversation and she instructs Jacob to go to the flock and to get two of your own, go get two of our own goats. And I'm going to make a meal for Isaac. Here's the deception. Because favoritism. She wanted Jacob to win over Esau. She wanted to assert the God-given authority that the blessing goes to the firstborn. So she tells Jacob, here's what we're going to do. You go get two goats. I'll, you kill them. I'll make a meal. You're going to go in there and you're going to deceive your father. You're going to tell him you're Esau. He goes, but mom, you're going to, he's going to know it's me. I'm not hairy like him. She said, don't worry. I'll take the skin of the goats and I'll put it on your arms. That's one hairy guy. So Rebecca puts the animal skins on Jacob's arms and sends him into the tent. And Jacob lies and says, it is I, Esau. And he presents the meal. And Isaac says, wow, that was fast. And that, that, was, that was a quick hunt. He brought in the meat. He came close to Isaac. It was at this point that the blessing was given and coming to an end. Right when Esau walked in the tent with what his father told him to do. He heard the blessing being passed to Jacob. And Esau cries out, bless me, God. Bless me, Father. Excuse me. Bless me, Isaac. Bless me. Please bless me. He knew the process, what was about to happen. The land of Canaan and the promises of God were supposed to be passed to him. But now, because of favoritism, the tragedy of it is that it has been passed on to the younger. And it could not be taken back. So Esau's blessing from Isaac was not even a blessing at all. Here's what it was. Here's the prayer over Esau. It was not like the prayer of the firstborn. The prayer of the firstborn was, I'm going to bless you. You're going to have blessings beyond measure. People that curse you are going to be cursed. People that bless you are going to be blessed. That was the blessing of the birthright. Here's Esau's blessing. He said, you're going to have to live by your sword. And you're going to have to serve your brother. That was his blessing. It wasn't the promise of blessings flowing in the life. It wasn't of great mighty things coming to him. It was you're going to have to fight every day of your life to live. You're going to have to do everything by every, any means possible. And also you're going to have to serve your brother. Esau now sold his birthright and now his blessing had been stolen by his brother. It was the last straw for Esau. Here's where the tragedy, the proverbial rubber meets the road. Verse 41 of Genesis 27. Esau hated Jacob. Because of the blessing wherewith his father blessed him. And Esau said in his heart, and we know the scripture, the heart is desperately wicked above all who can know it. He said in his heart, I'm going to wait because my father's about to die and then I'm going to kill my brother. So what started in a husband and wife, a broken relationship, a lack of communication, and then overspilled into their children by playing favorites, now has set in motion an animosity between two brothers. 
a birthright stolen, birthright sold and a blessing stolen. Rebecca, you would think she would hear know by now, but she hears Esau say she's going to kill her favorite son. So she speaks to Jacob and says, arise, my son, obey my voice and flee. Would you stand with me now? I'm closing with this last last comment. This is such a tragic scene in the last days of Isaac's life. He was the promised child of Abraham and Sarah. He was willing to lay on the altar on the mountain. He dug and redug. He moved on. He let bygones be bygones. He fed his enemy to the point that the blessings of God came back and they flowed out of his life. Everything was going good. And then his life ended with a relationship with his wife in turmoil. His eldest son losing his birthright and blessing. His youngest son running for his life because of the deception of his wife and their mother and the theft of his brother. Tonight, if we can understand that we are the children of God and that God does not have favorites, that God is not a respecter of persons and neither shall we be. The Bible calls us a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. We are covered by His blood and that God will always provide for us when we're willing to lay down our lives in worship and be obedient to Him. When we come in and we sacrifice in worship on a weekly basis and we give of ourselves daily. I believe tonight that if we can grasp these points of Isaac's life and we can learn through the life and the lessons of Isaac tonight, we will, we will understand that There cannot be any cliques. There cannot be any exclusive groups. That it takes everybody working together for the same purpose, for the same cause. And that is to take the whole gospel to the whole world. Our mission tonight is to not outdo one another. It's not to say, I'm blessed above you or you're blessed above me or or any of that. Our mission tonight is to say, you're my brother, you're my sister. We're in this together. We're in this fight together. And I feel in the Holy Ghost right now, just would you close your eyes and I just want to speak what I feel in my spirit to tell somebody tonight that whatever you're struggling with within your spirit, whatever you're battling in this moment, you've heard the voice of God, you know the voice of God, you've heard it before, you've obeyed it and you've watched God flow in your life, but now whatever the Lord is telling you is a struggle for you. I'm telling you to let go of it. Lay it on the altar. Be willing to let go of it and say, Lord, I hear you. Here I am. Lay it down today. And I promise you the Lord is going to bless you beyond measure. Now would you pray all together with me? Father, in the name of Jesus, I pray now for this beautiful congregation of people and those that are watching online. I pray, God, that this word somehow in some way would settle in the hearts of of your church, of the body of Christ, that, Lord, we would be willing, that we would be ready to stay obedient, even in a dry time, and that we would continue to dig and go into the highways and the byways and compel them to come. I pray now, God, that we, O Lord, would go and find those that are hurting and bruised and battered, Lord, that we would not find ourselves living on the brink of the tragedy of favoritism. But Lord, that you would unite us as one, that we would come collectively together, that you would show us your spirit and the power of it, God, when we come together and we bind together and we worship you in spirit 
and in truth. And we give you all the glory and the honor in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. Thank you for being here tonight. Thank you for watching online. God bless you. We'll see you this Sunday morning at 10 a.m.